This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. If there is any area that seems to be a bright spot where it looks like our preparations are working, and also that we may, I repeat, may be flattening the curve, that is in our hospitals. Now, the worry was that we could end up with scenes like what we have seen in Italy and New York, hospitals overwhelmed, not enough intensive care unit capacity and a shortage of ventilators, the breathing machines that are the last resort for keeping people alive. Let me give the numbers out. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Now, anecdotally, I have heard from doctors, uh, you know, from all parts of the country who've said that Things are okay in their hospitals, in their emergency and intensive care units. There is capacity. They're not overwhelmed. And I've also seen some numbers to that effect. And right now we are going to drill down on that with Dr. Joshua Tepper, who's the president and CEO of North York General Hospital, and Dr. Adam Kassam, a Toronto-based physical medicine and rehab specialist and public health expert. Doctors, welcome. Thanks so much for being with us. Good to be with you, Libby. Good afternoon. Okay, let's start with Dr. Tepper. So what is the situation in your intensive care unit? Uh, so we, you know, we actually have been uh, very busy. Uh, when you look at the data, we uh, have been sort of at an overcapacity. But provincially, when you look at the data, uh, the overall capacity across the system uh, you know, we do have some, some breathing room, which is wonderful news. I, I think what we've got to be clear on uh, is that news could change in, in days. Uh, and it is really, uh, you know, this is a hard-earned bit of good news, not by hospitals or doctors alone, but by all of society. And there is a huge risk that people read at this glimmer of good news and look at these graphs and sort of quietly or not so quietly re-engage in sort of more normal social engagements. And, and we could lose this within, you know, within days. I, I just want to go over, I'm looking at a graph. Uh, yep. Frankly, I'm not 100% sure I'm reading it completely correctly. So feel free to jump in and correct me. But what I see on this graph is that the modelers expected that there would be about 900 people in Ontario in intensive care units. But instead, what we have are 514 in the hospital with no intensive care Uh 56 in intensive care with no ventilators and 199 on ventilators. Am I reading that graph more or less right? So I don't have the graph in front of me that you're referring to, but I can certainly say that there is additional ICU and ventilator capacity and additional inpatient ward capacity uh, and more than we might have anticipated uh, at this 
on this date based on projections. So I think that is the sort of positive news that we're seeing. Uh, again, uh, that's, uh, that's a credit to everybody really following our physical distancing rules. Okay. And, and Dr. Kassam, is, is, uh, is the reason for that, that we are following the physical distancing rules, or does it have more to do with the kind of preparations that were made? I think it's probably a bit of both, but certainly the distancing measures that we're seeing, not only in Ontario, but across the world, uh, show to be working, right? So we know that this is an extremely important part of the mitigation um, phase of, uh, of COVID-19. And I think I'm looking at the same graph as you are. I think it's by Dr. Kwan. So shout out Dr. Kwan. Um, and you're right. You know, I think the total number of, uh, vent, uh, the total number of possible um, ventilation uh, capacity right now in the, in the system uh, is it, it has a bit of flex to it, um, and it's based on you know the additional ventilator capacity that was added in addition to sort of the baseline that we have at a, at a normal level. And so, um, as Dr. Tepper was saying, rightfully so, which is that you know we're very we're we're kind of still in the uh, the early innings of this ball game, Libby. Right, so we're on the top of the first, top of the second, maybe. And so we need to keep our foot in the gas. We need to make sure that people understand that this physical distancing is working and that we need to continue to do so. Is it possible that just the the, the timing, the predicted timing is off? Because I heard last week from uh, some of the medical officers of health that last week was supposed to be the peak. Now this week is supposed to be the peak. Could it just be that, that um, the peak will come later? It's, it's, it's hard to know. And remember, one of the things with flattening the curve is that it means we may be in this for a longer period of time. Uh, you know, that's, you know, when you look at that image and that concept of flattening, and so it gets a little bit, you know, the more, in a way, the more successful we are, the harder it gets to truly know quite when that peak is and when we might start to see the downturn. Um, and so that's, again, why, uh, you know, we're starting to see a stabilization. We're starting to see, you know, uh, uh, the flattening. But what I don't think you're, see- you're hearing or seeing in that data is that we're now rapidly declining in terms of the new cases. And so we've got to re- remember that this could easily start to tip up again uh, if we're not careful. Uh-huh. I mean, you mentioned a surge. Is, uh, if, if we successfully flatten, uh, wouldn't that mean there will be no surge? Yeah, or- Correct. We would try if we successfully flatten. Absolutely. And so it would be a longer, flatter period and avoiding that sharp uh, spike that we've seen in other in, in other countries, uh, quite unfortunately. A um, couple of questions that I have that are kind of related. I mean, uh, it seems to me that we made this capacity in the hospital by canceling a lot of the things that normally happen in the hospital. I mean, elective surgeries have been canceled, but I guess, you know, the criteria for what's elective, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of cancer surgery has been canceled. And I I know that there is always a consideration, how long can this wait? But, you know, it's, it's not like it's something trivial and, and diagnostic tests have been canceled and, and really, um, what is going to happen uh, when it time comes time to, to ramp up, uh, Dr. Tepper? You know, I think a lot of thought is being given to that now. Uh, the committees are being struck. Uh, expert leaders are being assigned. Uh, and I can tell you, even now, each day, uh, within our hospital and other hospitals, you know, we continue to have a very small amount of surgery and we triage that surgery time very carefully based on need. And so we are looking at the cases, we're looking at the wait list, and we are very carefully and selectively picking the cases that must 
be done. Uh, but there's also now work thinking, okay, what does it start to look like when we get to the other side? Um, and, and how do we start to very carefully uh, do these cases? And, and keep in mind, we may not be going back to what it looked like before. There may be a new normal in terms of how we select patients, uh, how patients are prepared, how the operating rooms are, are set up, how procedures are done. Uh, and so there's a lot of thought about, you know, there's not an assumption that this is going to just be like, okay, everything's just like it was eight weeks ago, off we go. We may have to think very differently about we, how we set up and operate uh, and function as a healthcare system uh, in the view of ongoing presence of COVID-19, just not at the levels we were uh, anxious about. And so, uh, but I can assure you there's a lot of conversation already happening about how do we start to turn the tap back on in a way that keeps people safe, in a way that starts to address uh, ongoing pent-up demand. Uh, Dr. Kasam, I mean, do you have a sense of what this will do to our wait times? And, you know, we often or sometimes see stories about an an elective procedure being postponed and and it ends up having tragic consequences. You're right, Libby. You know, look, care doesn't also just happen exclusively in the hospitals, right? So that's obviously a very important part of, of the care continuum. But a lot of the procedures, maybe even most of the procedures that are happening, um, are happening in the outpatient setting. So think of things like colonoscopies. Think of think of things like elective cataract surgeries. Um, uh, you know, for example, in my line of work, I, um, uh, I I do some procedures as well, and I've had to cancel clinics uh, on you know from an outpatient perspective. So we also have a disparity between not only hospital care and wait times that happen for hospital. Uh, services that are rendered there, but also out in the community. And I think that there is a tendency right now to perhaps look at COVID-19 in, in a vacuum, right? And we think about what we're needing to do, rightfully so, uh, for public health measures and in order to stem the spread of the disease. But there are other waves of care that we have to be worried about as well. And that, that doesn't also pertain just to COVID-19. So what I mean by that, for example, is that there's the impact of interrupted care for chronic conditions. So things like as you said, arthritis care, so it's hip and knee surgeries, um, you know, care out in the community. Uh, these are interrupted as well, and that's going to have a significant impact on the morbidity of patients uh, throughout our healthcare system. And I'll have to say, uh, we also find that, you know, uh, there are family physician offices, for example, that have been forced to lay off staff. You know, they are small business uh, owners as well, and so they've had to shudder in many, re- in many regards. And so I think what we need to be focused on, in addition to the hospitals, is the stabilization of a lot of the outpatient clinical care that uh, represents a significant fraction of the care that happens across the province. Okay. Um, I have a question, Dr. Tepper. It's it's probably a little bit, you know, uh, unpleasant and morbid, but it, it seems to me that in all of this, there's been a lot of focus on having enough ventilators and ventilator capacity and I think that in uh, a lot of the public mind is it's okay if things get really bad, you get on a ventilator and, and that's kind of the answer. But the survival rate for people going on ventilators and the consequences, even if they get off it, that it, it, it's really quite a, a terrible thing. Am I wrong? Yeah, I mean, to be placed on a ventilator, you have to be extremely sick. People with mild, again, we have to remember that most people who have COVID-19, the the overwhelming majority, will have mild to moderate symptoms and will not even need hospitalization. 
of those who do need hospitalization, only a very small subset of those will be sick enough to need uh, ventilation. We're seeing a lot of people also starting to need dialysis as well. And so these are people who are extremely sick. And then we know often it's affecting people who are older and the, the mortality rates much higher people who are older, who already are more frail with underlying conditions. So again, you know, when you're on a ventilator, it's, it's to begin with, um, you've reached a very significant state of ill health uh, and illness. And often it's happening to people who are already uh, sort of not in their peak or their prime health to begin with. So, you know, it is, it, you know, it is significant. On the other hand, we, we do know people uh, are able to to come off of ventilators. They live through that experience and leave the ICU. I mean, Boris Johnson uh, is a particularly high-profile example of that. He wasn't on a ventilator. He wasn't on a ventilator. He was in an ICU, though. Yeah. So he was ext- sick enough to require an ICU yep. uh, admission, which even to require an ICU, you have to be quite unwell. Yeah. I am talking to Dr. Adam Kassam and Dr. Joshua Tepper, and I'm going to take a call from Rudy in Toronto. Hi, Rudy. Uh, hi, Libby. Hi. First of all, I, w- I want to say that I-, I was in the hospital on March 25th at Humber River. It wasn't my first choice, but that's where the paramedics took me. It was on a different, uh, uh, in a different issue about uh, nausea and, uh, and uh, vomiting and so on. But anyway, uh, so I, the uh, and the staff there were were exceptionally good and conscientious, and they took uh, very very good care of me. And uh, um, I commend them for uh, that's uh, that's great. What's your question? But I have some some questions about the virus itself. Uh, I'm not getting much information about uh, how to protect ourselves uh, from it. Um, I understand the virus is not airborne, except when someone coughs. But then how long does it stay in that area uh, where the person was, and, and does it fall to the ground after that? And, um, you know, is it safe to walk through that area? Okay. And also, does, how long does it stay on, on certain objects? Because uh, I've heard the, it lasts for a different time, uh, whether it's metal, wood, or, or plastic. Okay, we'll let... Can answer that, those questions? Yep, we'll let... Uh, Dr. Kassam, do you want to take that? Yeah, sure. So, uh, Rudy, you're right. I'm, I'm sorry that you had to go into the hospital, but I'm glad that you're uh, you're now better and and and, men- and on the mend. Um, you know, you're right that uh, right now there isn't any particularly robust data to suggest that uh, there is any airborne transmission. And so, what we think about right now are sort of dro- is droplet transmission. And of course, that can it, part of the reason why this is the case is that it usually is spread by people who cough or sneeze, and which is why. Some of the recommendations from the public health experts are, are, are rightfully to, to recommend things like trying to cover your mouth uh, and nose when you're sneezing or coughing. In terms of how long it lasts on different services, there is some debate out there, and I think that the, some of the studies have shown that it can persist up to 72 hours on certain surfaces, and um, which is part of the reason why diligent hand washing and wiping down of countertops, for example, at home is going to be important as well. And so, yes, in theory, it would be able to, you know, persist on the ground, but um, trying to be mindful of where we're touching um, is, is also going to be part of uh, that mitigation. Okay, now I have a question for Dr. Tepper. It, it seems to me that there's not only a huge divergence in, in how serious uh, the the sickness is, but also the duration of it. Uh, so what's kind of the range of how long it lasts? And also, it, it seems that in many cases, it takes a really bad turn for the worse at around seven to 10 days. Can you clarify that, please? Yeah, so again, there is a different, there's differences by different groups of people. 
Um, and again, most people do have mild symptoms. Uh, but again, we often people, you know, it can be a couple weeks easily. And then we're recommending that people continue to really self-isolate for a couple more weeks on top of that uh, to really reduce the tr- uh, risk of further transmission. So again, because of the, sev- the variation and the severity of the disease, uh, people's individual experiences might be quite different. And it is that mildness as well that particularly in the early days makes it quite easily to be transmitted. But often after a few days, uh, that is, you know, a week or so, that's when people can develop some of the more significant sy- symptoms, particularly short, the shortness of breath. Mm-hmm. Um, it, that seems, um, oh, I don't know, <laughs> how does that happen? What's the process that makes that happen? Um, so again, it has to do with as, as the disease evolves, particularly in the lungs, uh, and as the lungs are affected. Although, to be honest, I think we're still learning more and more about exactly how the virus is affecting the body. And I think as more people have been sick, we've unfortunately, I guess, had more chance to learn our understanding of, of what is happening at sort of the cellular level or within the body or physiologically. Uh, is continuing to evolve uh, and, and change quite a bit. So I, you know, I, I don't know if Dr. Kassam feels uh, more confident drawing hard lines. I, my own sense in reading of the literature is that is that our understanding of exactly what's happening physiologically uh, is still a bit evolving as we're doing more studies, and that's partly why what we see is clinical trials and, and types of medications and stuff uh, as potential uh, treatment options is continuing to evolve as well. Dr. Kassam, uh, we're oh, sorry. learning more. Dr. Kassam, do you have uh, anything to add to that? Yeah, no, I completely agree with Dr. Tepper. I think that be, you know the novel nature of this novel coronavirus is that we haven't seen it before, and and, and we're still, we're still as a, as a medical and scientific community learning about how it really presents and affects the body. And 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 what we're finding is that there are potentially different types of presentations, right? And I think you know, for example, I think there were pediatricians in Ontario that that looked at uh, skin rashes as, as a potential uh, initial clinical manifestation for. Uh, this disease. There are case reports of the disease, uh, the virus affecting um, the, the membranes around the brain. And so I think that uh, as we are learning more, uh, we are trying to figure out and get a handle on really how this affects the body in many different ways. And, and there's that interesting uh, loss of sense of smell and taste. Loss of smell. I knew you were going to comment on that. <laughs> yes. That's a, that's another example and it is sort of a, a bit of an unusual one that catches the imagination a bit. Okay. Well, yeah, you know, so well, a lot of people who are at at home putting on the quarantine 15 so they they know that they're not sick. Yeah. Um I just lost my train of thought. Um so the other thing uh that I uh am learning from from scientists and clinicians and stuff I'm reading is that there seem to be Two different approaches. Uh, there's people who are looking for the vaccine, but then there are other researchers who are saying, "Hey, the answer may not be a vaccine. That that really polio is the only disease completely eradicated by a vaccine, and and that we have to look for treatments. Uh, so, is it a case of either or or both?" I mean, I, I would say both. I mean, there are certainly diseases that continue to exist in our society that have not been completely eradicated, but have been demonstrably changed. Uh, Chickenpox is one that, as a, I'm a family doctor, that I can just say that over the course of my clinical 
training and career. The introduction of, of that vaccine has not eradicated chickenpox completely, but it's fundamentally changed uh, its presentation, its prevalence, and its incidence uh, in society. So my own, my own view is it's going to be a bit of both. Okay. And uh, in terms of the vaccine, you know, I keep looking for silver linings. And I, I'm wondering that with, with all this anxiousness that we find a vaccine, I'm, I'm wondering if it might turn the tide on those anti-vaxxers. Do you have any sense of that, Dr. Kassam? Yeah, Olivia, I was actually just going to say, say that. Uh, I think that, you know, you're finding right now um, an opportunity uh, worldwide uh, to really change the dial on um, what it means to have a vaccine for something that is so catastrophic as far as its, its um, impact uh, on global society. And when we do a postmortem, hopefully after we get this vaccine, which a lot of people are hanging their hat on in terms of, you know, a, a reasonable um, strategy for the mitigation of this virus, we're going to, I would be very hard pressed to see whether or not anti-vaxxers and sort of this disinformation, misinformation um, infrastructure that has been developed over time through social media and other, other strategies uh, will hold any water. And I think that, um, you know, uh, we have to be very, very mindful that we are following science, that we are evidence-based, and that it works. You know, so I think that uh, I think physicians, scientists, clinicians, people who believe in science understand the data. And we need to continue to ha- hammer home that this is an important thing for, uh, for us globally. Dr. Tepper, I want to get back to something uh, I didn't pick up on at the beginning of our conversation. You were saying that your hospital is closer to capacity uh, and certainly in the ICU than others that have more room. Can you tell me what's going on at North York General? Um. What I would just say, and this is an important reminder, is that a lot of the patients who are currently in our ICU are not sick with COVID. Many are, but not all of them. And I think it's just a a good conversation or a good loop back to your comment earlier that there are other things happening and people continue to get sick with other things, sometimes very seriously sick. And so, uh, you know, people continue to have heart attacks. People continue to have, uh, you know, accidents and people continue to have flares of their underlying chronic disease that requires hospital treatment or uh, treatment in the community as well as uh, Dr. Kassam rightly rightly highlights. Um, And so again, you know, we have a huge province and at any given point we may see uh, certain areas uh, struggle either because of other types of issues that are happening or because of COVID. And and you're managing though now, you said you're at or over capacity? No, well, we, we do have, because we have built up, uh, we do have additional capacity. And so we're, you know, the team's doing a fantastic job and we do have the capacity we need and we can continue. Uh, you know, we still have additional capacity uh, if we need it okay. in the days ahead. I'd like to think we don't, but we are prepared if we need it. That is very good to hear, and uh, I really, really appreciate your time, Dr. Joshua Tepper and Dr. Adam Kassam. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Libby. Okay. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. 
Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.